on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now here in this first part, we're going to take a look at with Elijah, the stability of Elijah. Elijah is, is, is except for his one uh, situation he had over there with the, with the cave, he is very stable in all the things that he, he walks in in the Lord. He, he's stable in his calling. He knows when he hears from God. And this just seems to be a matter-of-fact thing, but when was the last time in the Bible that we ever heard that a whirlwind caught somebody up into heaven? Never really heard that before, have we? But Elijah is confident that what has never happened before is going to happen. He rests very much in that. He's just like, a, you know, that's, this is what's going to happen. He is so confident in it that Elisha is pretty confident in it, and the people around him are pretty confident in it. Now, we don't know where Elisha got this from. I doubt very much that another prophet came up and prophesied it over him. Uh, if, because up to now, to now, if Elijah needs something from God, he gets it. God just speaks it to him. God does not need to raise up a prophet to tell Elijah this thing. He probably heard it. Maybe he mentioned it to Elisha. Maybe Elisha mentioned it to some people. Maybe Elijah mentioned it. And who, However it was, it got out. All you have to do is get something like that out to one person. And it will spread all over the place. However it got out, everyone around there hears about it and pretty much is confident that this is going to happen even though it has never happened before. We had Enoch that went up to heaven, but we had no mention of a whirlwind. It just sort of happened. But Elijah is the first one who knows about it ahead of time. It's not quite the same thing, but it's almost like someone who says, I'm going to die today. And we've heard of a few people who have done that and still were kind of mesmerized by, by this. What do you mean you're going to die today? You're doing fine. You're healthy. You're, you're doing good. No, nope, no, nope, I'm going home to the Lord today. I've heard of a few uh, in my lifetime that have done that. And uh, they're just, it's time to go. And that's, that is still pretty striking to us. But this one, God's coming down to get him. No, God has never come down to get him before or to get anyone else before. But God says, I'm coming to get you. And it's going to be on this day. Uh, however long it is that he's known that this is the day, but he knows this is the day and he's very confident in it. So Elijah was very confident in his calling. And Elijah is very confident in his hearing. What he hears from the Spirit of God, he is very confident that it is going to come about. There's no doubt in him that it's going to happen. It's not going to rain except at my word. How does he know that? Because God told him. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. How does he know that will happen? <laughs> Gets on the top of the mountain. He starts teasing the other side. And then he builds up his and douses it with water. And then just one prayer. God bring fire down and fire comes down. He's very confident in his calling. He's very confident in what he hears from God. Be nice to get around somebody like that, isn't it? But he says here to, to Elisha, God has sent me on. God has sent me on. He's, he's directed me to go over to here. Now, he's, he's in Gilgal, but God apparently has told him, let's read it again, verse 2, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. That tells us that he heard from God to go from Gilgal to Bethel. 
Now, I did a bunch of research on where these cities are. I was going to bring you over a map, but I didn't uh, get that far. But when Israel came over into the, uh, crossed over in the, the Jordan, they came to a place, and that place was called Gilgal. They named it Gilgal. And it was a place where once they came on over, remember the Moses had them all become circumcised? No, yeah, uh, Joshua had them all become circumcised. Because all the people, in Joshua chapter 4 and 5, you read about this, all the people when they came out of Egypt were circumcised. But throughout the time in the wilderness, they were not circumcised. All the people who were in Egypt died. So the people that are left are the people that were not born or not alive in Egypt, some of the real young ones maybe. But, uh, so they, had a, they brought them all over and all the men of fighting age and they had them all circumcised, but not until they get into the land of the enemy. They get in the land of the enemy and they, they do this. Now, they come over the Jordan to the place called Gilgal. If you look this up, you'll find out there's about three different places that are referred to as Gilgal. Some of the explanations for that is that there is a particular thing they would build that they would call Gilgal, and they may have built that in a few different places. But this place in the, in the book of Joshua, they said they named it Gilgal. So we're going to go off of this one being the places that they're at. When Joshua came over from, from Jordan, crossed the Jordan, came to Gilgal, what's the first thing that they did, if you remember back into your, your days in the book of Joshua? They had 12 people. Twelve of the leaders, one from each tribe, and they got some, some rocks, some biggest rock I guess they can carry, and they carried them out of the Jordan and they built a memorial. So there are memorial stones at this place that reminds them, and they they're told them all the things they were supposed to remember, that reminds them all that. Plus they had the, the uh, uh, circumcision that went on there. And then after that, they went over from Gilgal to attack what city? Jericho. Jericho is the first city they attacked. They attacked it from the place of Gilgal. That's where they were. So that would mean to me that Gilgal and Jericho are fairly close together. Now, there's a couple other locations of Gilgal, and most of those are not close to this, but this particular one is fairly close to Jericho. So he's in Gilgal, and God speaks to him and says, I need you to go to where? To Bethel. Now, Bethel is not next to Jericho. It's not next to Gilgal. It's about halfway across the country, uh, their country, width-wise, not length, but width-wise. They have to go to the, um, to the west to get over to, to Bethel. And so they go on over to Bethel because God said to do it. Now, we're never told what he has to do in Bethel. All we're told is that God tells them to go to Bethel. Now, if God's going to tell you to go to Bethel, on the last day you're going to be here on the earth, there's got to be a purpose for it, right? And we're never told it. We're never told what the purpose is. He just says, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. I'm staying right here. So they... Went down to Bethel. They make the, the trip there on their own. So they go from Gilgal to the west, about halfway across the country, to the place called Bethel. And then what happens when they get over to Bethel? In verse 2, Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. 
Now you would read this and you almost think, think like, all right, now you got the best, now you got to, um, uh, now you got to this place. I want you, I want you to move on. But so, something had to happen there, right? So Elijah says to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Keep him. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to, to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. Where is Jericho? Near, near Gilgal. Mm-hmm. So we have gone all this way over here to Bethel to now go back to Jericho. Now, if you are Elisha, and you, you know the geography of the place, we, we just were there. <laughs> he, may, he may be saying, why didn't I just wait there and meet him over here? <laughs> yeah, but he, he's not going to do it. And so here's a, all right, we came all the way out here, and now we're just going back to the same place just about. It might press on him a little bit like, what are you doing today? This is your last day here on the earth, and you're just kind of arbitrarily going back and forth. But when he gets over to Bethel, who comes out to see him? The sons of the prophets, which would mean that there are prophets there. Now, remember what God said to Elijah? I have 7,000 beside you that I can raise up in your place. Now, we know that Jezebel had killed off a number of the prophets. We know that uh, uh, some of them were preserved. We have some stories about how some of them were preserved. But here we have in Bethel that there are sons of the prophets. There's more than one. There's a, there's, a, there's a number of them. So I would think, just supposing, that Elijah's purpose in going from where he is in Gilgal over here to Bethel is to encourage, teach, instruct, whatever, the sons of the prophets that are there. Those are the people he's interacting with. We don't hear of anybody else interacting, interacting with them. But they interact with the sons of the prophets who come on down and they, they talk to Elisha. You see, it's easier to say this to Elisha because they see Elisha as more of a peer. But Elijah, he's, he's up here. <laughs> we don't dare approach Elijah about that sort of stuff. We'll go over here to Elisha. So, um, do you, not, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? Like they need to inform him. Isn't it great? Here's the guy. He's, he is buddy-buddy with Elijah. Going everywhere that Elijah goes, he's right there. And you guys that are not with him all the time are going to tell me what's happening? Do you not know the Lord will take away your master from over you today? Now, I wonder if there's a little bit in them say you'll be on the same footing as the rest of us. You won't have Elijah to hide behind. You're going to be on the same footing as the rest. I don't know if that's in there or not, but I just kind of wonder if they're, they're kind of nudging him a little bit. You know, you're not going to have this guy. You're going to be on your own. Who's going to listen to you then? Yes, I know. Keep silent. Because he doesn't answer him real nice. This is not a real nice answer. This is, uh, yo, shut up. <laughs> yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. Exactly the same thing that he said before, except for the destination. Instead of Bethel, I'm going on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. He answers exactly the same way. He doesn't change it. 
Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. (laughs) He answers them the same way he answers the other ones. Doesn't change it at all. So it almost seems like, you know, this is known all over the place. And uh, they're kind of looking forward to Elisha being brought down a few notches, maybe. Being more their their equal. And they're looking for, you know, we're, we're, we know the day's coming. But these folks know it. The other folks know it. But we've got a group of prophets over here at Jericho. We've got a group of prophets over there at Bethel. How many other cities have a group of prophets in it? But these are, the, these are two that he was sent to. He was in Gilgal. He goes up to Bethel. He comes back now to, to Jericho which is not far from where he started. So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. So here we have 50 men of the sons of the prophets. I don't know if they all came from Jericho, if they came from, from, from where they were at. But he went from Jericho to the Jordan River. Now the Jordan River goes all up along the, the coast there. They could have gone to any point. Don't know what exact point they went to. Probably something fairly close to Jericho. These guys just kind of venture out. And they, they watch them. So these 50 are watching them. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. And while the two of them stood by the Jordan, now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. And it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, before God has done this for the entire nation of Israel, in the Red Sea, he did it for the crossing over the Jordan. But now, there's two guys. Two guys going over the Jordan, and they decide, we're going to go over on dry ground. We don't want to get a boat. We're just going to take the mantle, snap it at the, the water, and they go over on dry ground. Now, just to refresh our memory, the crossing of the two rivers, when Israel first came to the Red Sea, they had no choice. It was not an act of faith on their part. They had no choice. They couldn't go backwards. They couldn't go to the side. They couldn't go to the other side. There was no way to go. They were crying out. They were in des- des- despair. And that's the second one. They had no heart. No heart. They were scared. They had no choice. They had no heart. And number three, they had no faith. They didn't have faith to believe for the water to, to part. They didn't have faith for God to show up and strike down the Egyptians. They didn't have faith for a thing. They just cried out like sissy babies. But when they come to the Jordan, when the entire nation of Israel comes to the Jordan under Joshua, it's a very different thing. They come to the Jordan and the Jordan River does not part for them. The Red Sea, it parted for them. The wind came and dried it all up, and then they went across. It's already done. They just have to walk into it. When they come to the Jordan, nothing changes until the priests who are carrying the ark step into the Jordan River. Once they step into the Jordan River, then it starts to part. But they had to start when nothing changed. The other folks wouldn't have done it. These folks would have. They were ready. They had grown up. They had confidence. They, were, they had obedience. They, were, they had confidence. And they had faith. 
They had faith to believe. They had grown. They had changed in their time out, out there. And here we, we see with this, in this one, that not only was uh, Elijah had stability, but he also had validity. And God continued to, val- to validate his ministry everywhere he went and everything that he did. Now, I put this note in your outline for you. Preservation was not Elijah's motivation. He is not out to preserve himself. It was acquisition. Elisha didn't want to just preserve what he had. He wanted to acquire more stuff, more stuff from God, more of the anointing. He, wanted to, he was after acquisition. He wanted to get stuff. He wasn't ready to sit on what he had. He had all this experience, all this time with Elijah. He wasn't going to sit on that. Now, verse 9. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? See how confident he is? I'm going to be taken away from you. So you ask. This has never been done before, but it's about to happen. (laughs) Kind of like uh, Joshua. When Joshua said, don't let the, the sun go down. Never been done before? Ask what may I do for you before I am taken away from you. Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, we've talked about this before. Double portion does not mean that twice the anointed you have, I want to have. That's not what double portion means. Double portion is an inheritance term. That if you had, say like uh, 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 Israel had 12 children. Of the 12 sons that he had, the inheritance would be divided among them. Twelve would not be divided twelve ways. What you would do is you would take the inheritance and you would divide it thirteen ways. And then the oldest son gets a double portion of the rest. So it's not double what everyone else, or it's, not, it's not a double what everyone else gets. It's you take the whole inheritance, you divide it into the number of sons that would get it plus one, and then the oldest gets his plus the plus one. Now, the less kids there are, the bigger that double portion is. In the case that Jesus used with the the two sons, the prodigal son as it's known as, his entire inheritance was divided into three parts. The oldest son got two. The youngest son got one because that's how it's done. Now, it's not all explained in the parable, but that's how it's done in Israel. So the older son who was behind was jealous and felt all that even though he had two-thirds of the inheritance. Not half, two-thirds. The younger son squandered one-third. So that's how the double portion works. So you read this double portion. We're reading this in the minds of the, of the Israelites. We're thinking double portion, whatever you had, I get twice that. But that's not it. The, the thought is that whatever is on Elijah is going to be dispersed. And I want twice what everyone else gets. Is what he's basically asking for. Because again, we've gone on a tour here and there's a lot of prophets that he ministers to. Now we've, we've uh, done the, the count. How many of y'all done the count? We know that uh, so many miracles were uh, attributed to Elijah. So many more miracles were attributed to Elisha. I believe the numbers are 7 and 14. Didn't look them up again, but I'm pretty sure. 7 miracles to Elijah. 14 miracles to Elisha. But... Elijah's miracles are bigger. Elijah's miracles impact an entire nation. Elisha's miracles impact sometimes a family, an individual, and sometimes more than that. 
but they're much smaller. And plus, a double portion or having twice the anointing does not mean you do twice as many miracles. The impact on the country between Elisha and Elijah is not even close. Now, Elisha was a great prophet in the nation of Israel, but Elijah was in a class by himself. He was special. And Elisha was not twice the prophet that Elijah was. He's a good prophet, but he was not twice the prophet that Elijah was. Nor is he the one coming back. It's, a, it's Elijah that gets to come back. So he says, I want a double portion of your, your spirit be on me. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Now he's expecting to get a portion because he is his direct mentor and was the successor or anointed to be the successor of Elijah. So he's expecting to get something, but he wants to get twice as much as what he was expected to get. Basically, that's the best way I can put it. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked. This is your last day on earth. This is the guy that God gave you to mentor and to develop. What are you talking about? (laughs) I don't know. That doesn't tell us anything that they talked about. Elisha doesn't share any of it. I have a feeling it, it, it has to do with stuff in the future. Because Elijah seems to know some things about the future. And Elisha may be wanting to tap into some of that. Whatever it might be, there's a conversation that's going on and they are not wasting time. (laughs) They're talking about some real important things. And in the middle of this conversation, here's where we go. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, I get the picture of this. Most of the time we see this, we see, you know, we see this depicted. You see the chariot of fire coming down and Elijah hopping in on it and then being taken away. But that's not what's described. The chariot separates them. And Elijah is caught up in a whirlwind and taken, which is what he was said. He was going to be caught up in a whirlwind. And I don't know, I picture more of a tornado and just being shot straight up in the air. And maybe he meets up with the chariot after that. Very, very likely. I don't know exactly. We're, we're not told. Apparently it's not too important. But the horses, the chariot comes. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it. And he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. Now I can't imagine that means all his clothes. Maybe it means an outer garment or something like that, but uh, I'm sure he wasn't planning on going back to the city naked. Now we see that before they crossed the Jordan, that Elijah comes upon, upon three different tests. And upon him completing these tests is when the request is made by Elijah. and says, what can I do for you? So the first one is over here at Gilgal. The second one is at Bethel. And the third is at Jericho. When he was at Gilgal, what was he told? Stay here. Please. The Lord has sent me to go on. To Bethel. No, wherever you go, I'm going. Is that Bethel? Stay here, please. The Lord has called me to go on to Jordan. No, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And he gets to Jericho, and he says, stay here, please. The Lord has called me to go to the Jordan. 
No, wherever you go. And they're always the same thing. Never, never changes. It's always the, the same. It seems that Elijah is trying to see if he'll stay behind. If he will allow something to, to separate. Because he's called as a servant to Elijah. So if Elijah is asking you to stay, you, you might think, well, maybe I'm supposed to do this. But the Lord called me to be a helper to Elijah, which means I need to go where he is. But he's telling me to stay. So this is part of what's, what's going on. And he, he decides, he doesn't even think about it. No, 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 I don't care what you say. I am called to be by your side. Whether you like it or not, I'm staying right here with you. There's nothing that is stated that he has to be there with Elijah or that this request is ever going to be made by Elijah. But he says, no, I'm not leaving you. I'm staying right here. And he hit that three times. And then finally, once they crossed the Jordan, that's when he says, what can I do for you? Now let's take a look at these three things because it seems significant, the places that he went. First off, at Gilgal, because basically what Elijah is doing is he's taking Elisha on a tour. He's taking him on a tour. First stop over here is Gilgal. Where they, was, where, they are, where they started at, they're over here at Gilgal. And Gilgal represented for the children of Israel a separation. There was a time when they had to, the, to separate themselves from the wilderness. They came out of the wilderness. God says, all right, now that you're out of the wilderness, I didn't do this on this side, which was the wilderness side. I did it on this side, the promised land side. You all are going to be circumcised. We are separating you from the wilderness. You're not in the wilderness anymore. You're now in the promised land. And I need you to act like that. When they became circumcised in the, in the country, right, right near Jericho, they became vulnerable. They had to have a trust in God. You don't become trustworthy of God and do this. You had to have a trust in God to do this. Because all the, all the warriors are getting circumcised, which means all the children and all the wives are vulnerable. Everyone has to trust God, not just the men. Everyone has to trust God. Can you imagine the men coming home and saying, uh, Honey, I'm going to be laid up for a couple of days. <laughs> this, we, can you imagine being a, being a wife there? Wait, wait, we just get in the enemy territory? We've got people all around here that want to kill us? And you come home with this? I can't imagine too many wives were happy about this. There's probably some fighting that was going on in, in there and unless they were all in a place of trust. God said we are to do this. We need to obey God. Well, we sure do. They sure do. So there was a separation between them and the wilderness in this first place. And as he's taking them around, he's, he's showing them all these things. Then they go out to Bethel. Now, Bethel is known as the house of God. I put in there worship. This is the place of, of worship. This is the place where the children of Israel would come to worship God. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the place they would come to seek after God. This is the place that they came for sacrifices. This is the place where Israel wrestled with God and named this place Bethel, House of God. That's the second place where they come. The third is Jericho, which is a city that was not supposed to be rebuilt. Remember, there was a curse put on it and it got rebuilt. This represents faith. It's the first battle that they took on in the promised land. And God fought this for them, but they had to do some things. And they had to do some things that didn't make any sense. Walk around the city once each day for six days and do not say a word. 
you are to walk around that in silence. Can you imagine two to four million people walking around a city and no one saying a word? Think of some groups, some groups you've been in and they call for silence. <laughs> and you can still hear the murmurings all the way around the place, even though it's supposed to be silent. It's still the murmurings are all going on. Have you ever been to a, a, a classical music concert? No, no one's ever been to a Really? No. Completely different from any other concert you've been to. It, you go to any other concert, there's noise, there's people talking, there's people doing stuff. You go to a classical music concert. If you, if you were under one with Eugene Ormandy, if you sneezed, he had been known to turn around, stop the performance, turn around, and have you removed. If you sneeze. My dad told me stories about that. There is no sounds in the auditorium when this is going on. It's quiet. At the end of it, I believe you're allowed to applaud. But there's a little bit of a pause there because, you know, we're waiting to see, making sure that it's over because we don't interrupt the music. I think it's just because classical music is more beautiful than all the rest. It's my thought. (laughs) I know some people don't like, I love classical music. I think it's the best stuff out there, but not everybody shares that opinion. But anyway, a classical music concert is completely different from anything else. But even there, if you get in, you're still going to hear some noises. But the Word of God tells us there were no noise. That they all, two to four million people remained silent for the entire time it takes to walk around the city. That's amazing to me. That's some folks that learned. They were just walking. Just had a walk. Just had a walk around. Seventh day, they had to do it seven times. Still in silence. And at the end of it, all surrounding the city. They were to shout, blow the trumpets, make all kinds of noise, which they did. And then the walls just collapsed inward into the city and killed a lot of the people and they went in and got the rest of them. It was a tremendous time of faith. It was the first battle they took on. It was by faith that they did it. It wasn't by their own strength. And they saw the hand of God come in. That's the third place that they were at. And then they come over to the Jordan. And when he comes over with the mantle and he slaps the river with the mantle, what is he bringing remembrance back to? But the crossing of the Jordan the first time that we did it. The first time we came to this place, we crossed over on dry ground. And we're going to go back. So he's bringing memory to that. And here we see that at Jordan, when they crossed over, they had come to a place of maturity. When they came to the Jordan the first time and they never crossed over, they weren't supposed to cross over anyway. Uh, God said, no, you're not going to go over anymore because you all are in doubt and unbelief. And You know, they sent the spies in. The spies came back, gave a bad report. They all said, we're not going in. And then they changed their mind the next day and decided to go in anyway. Yeah, well, they didn't go over on, the, on dry ground. They went over however as they went over. They got wet when they were going over and they got wet on the way back. But when they came over under Joshua... And they hit the second time. There was a great deal of maturity that was there. That was not there when they came to it the first time. And the Jordan parted. And they walked across. We see separation at Gilgal. We see worship at Bethel. We see faith at Jericho. And we see maturity. Places that he took them to. God says, I want you to go here. There's probably places there had prophets as well. 
But God specifically says, I want you to go to, uh, from Gilgal, I want you to go to Bethel, I want you to go to Jericho, and I want you to go to the Jordan. And the places are given to us, which we know the Bible doesn't do by accident. And these are all things that are done on his last time here on the earth. And then he's taken up into heaven. But he was given this thing, what may I do for you? Kind of similar to what Saul, uh, uh, Solomon had when God says, what shall I give you? What may I do for you? See, so that answer will expose your true desires. What, what may I do for you? He must have known that he could ask him that. God must have told him. God may have even told him, says, I'm going to send you to these places. I want you to try and tell him to stay back. If he doesn't stay back and if he follows you to each one of these places, once you cross the Jordan again, this is what I want you to do. Because how many times has he probably been by the Jordan before or by, by the rivers and he doesn't slap them to cross them over on dry ground? But he does on this one. It would seem, especially from his, his history, that Elijah knows exactly where he will be going and what he needs to be doing. Elisha doesn't know that, but he does. I put this part in your outline. When God gives us a command or a calling, can anyone, anything, or any circumstance talk us out of it? When God has given you a calling, are there things that can come up that can talk you out of that calling? Is there anyone who can come up and talk you out of that calling? I've seen this with people. People feel a call from God, and because of their interaction with certain people, have dropped that call because there was someone who could talk them out of it. There are sometimes that something has been able to talk people out of it. They didn't like the way some things were going. They didn't like the way some things had happened. They didn't like how difficult some things were becoming. And they decided to quit. There might be some circumstances, whatever it might be. Is there anything that if God says, this is what I want you to do, is there anything that can talk you out of it? Three times, Elijah, who, I don't know, I can't see any of us being under a guy like Elijah and not saying that the things that would go on with this guy. And if he's telling me I should stay here, maybe I should stay here. Maybe, maybe it's what I'm supposed to do. But he didn't get talked out of it. He says, no, wherever you're going, I'm going. He gives him the same answer all three times. Doesn't change the answer at all. All three times he gives them the same answer. Now remember, the 50 guys came out to watch and they watched them at the Jordan and they saw Elijah strike the river. It says they were watching. So they had to see all this. They had to see the, red, the, the Jordan part. They had to see these two guys go over. And then it's all going to probably close back again. In fact, it does close back again. And they may have gone away. We'll catch up with them Later on, I'll put this in your outline for you too. Will we go where it is uncomfortable or will we stay where it's easy? That's got to be a little tough to make the trip from Gilgal all the way out to Bethel and then back from Bethel all the way over to Jericho. It would have been easier just to say, yeah, you know what, if you don't mind, I think I will stay here. <laughs> God didn't tell me to go down there. He told you to go. I'm just going to stay here. This is going to be all right because it's uh, a little bit easier. Put this in your outline. Do we really want what God wants? Sometimes we like to say that. We like to sing songs about that. But when it comes right down to it, do we really want 
what God wants. Too often we want what God wants as long as it's easy. As long as it's not too hard. As long as nobody offends me. As long as nobody gets in my way. As long as stuff doesn't happen that I don't like. Right? We have kind of conditions. Well, God, I'll do that as long as. And we'll list out those things. What if Paul had a, a thing like that? God, I'll go anywhere you want as long as the ships arrive. As long as I don't get beat. <laughs> he may have had a list, but he, apparently he didn't because how many times was he shipwrecked? How many times was he hungry? How many times was he beaten? I'll go as long as people will accept me. Well, no, the, that didn't happen very often, did it? I'll go as long as the ministry isn't too hard. Word of God says he despaired even of life. I'd say that's hard. But here's some stuff I didn't get to fit this in your outline. You can do with it as you want. Elijah was called by God to go out and to anoint Elisha as prophet to take over his place. And from that point on, Elisha followed Elijah. And we can tell from this story he didn't he didn't go anywhere else. Wherever Elijah went, Elisha was there. He's always there. And that may be some of the attitude that you got from the prophets. You know, no matter what, he's always there. You're not going to have that anymore. You're not going to be able to, to be his shadow anymore. I think that had to be part of it. But Elijah was called to be a mentor to Elisha. Now, the little bit that we know about Elisha, how willing do you think he was to mentor someone else? I kind of think he wasn't real willing. He doesn't seem to like people. He seems to like to be by himself. He gets disappointed. He feels isolated anyway. He just kind of likes to uh, just leave me alone. When God speaks to me, I'll come out. I'll speak it. I don't really, really don't care if you like me. I really don't care if you obey this thing. Here it is. <laughs> I did my part. See ya. <laughs> and he goes on. You get the idea that he doesn't like people a whole lot. As far as we know, there's no wife in the picture. There's no kids in the picture. If he has family, we never hear of them. If he has friends, we don't know it. He's just by himself. Out there, doing what, um, God, I'm here. I'll do whatever you want to do. And I don't care who likes me. I don't care who gets upset at it. Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll, I'll do it. Now, the one time he got a little upset with, with stuff, but that happens when you get in isolation. We've, we've gone all that before. But I don't get the idea from this that Elijah likes to be with people. As a mentor, don't you kind of have to like to be around people? Don't you have to have some kind of enjoyment from people in order to be a good mentor? Is Elisha mentored well? Just what we know of, his, of Elisha's ministry. Is he mentored well? As far as a prophet, is, has, does he walk in the area of... Is he, is he a good prophet? Yeah, he's an outstanding prophet. I mean, he's, he's good. He is a good prophet. He does, he does a, a, a real nice job. We would say then that it would seem Elijah did okay. Now, of the two, a little bit that we know, we haven't gone into Elisha's life. We're going to get into him next. But as of the two, who do you think would make a better mentor? Elisha. Elisha is always around people. 
He's always putting in the people. He's always showing up at the school of the prophets, apparently teaching people. He is, you never find Elisha by himself. He's always got folks. And he's got one servant, then he moves on to the next servant, moves on to another servant. Once they become disqualified, he moves on, he goes out and gets another servant. Doesn't ever quit mentoring somebody. He's always mentoring somebody. But who succeeded Elisha? Nobody that we know of. But Elijah had the successor. Yet who was the better mentor? More than likely, Elisha. I really don't see Elijah being a great mentor. Because, look, you can do what I say. You do not do it. I don't really don't care what you do. <laughs> That's all there is to it. But Elijah is the one who has the successor. Which shows us that in the area of mentoring, there is just as much responsibility on the mentoree as the mentor. You can have a lousy mentor and be a good mentoree and learn stuff. You can have a great mentor and be a lousy mentoree and come out with nothing. Which is what we saw with Elijah. We're going to see Gehazi and we're going to see some others and they all disqualified themselves. They were no good. But it wasn't the fault of Elisha. Elisha never gave them those examples. Never gave them this, this kind of a way of, of to go. But that's the way that they went. Now Elisha does not follow in the same footsteps as Elijah. His ministry is different. He does different things. Which is good. Which is good. There's no reason. You don't have to be a carbon image in order to, to follow up that. He, he didn't become that. But we're called to be mentors. And we look at the football season that started and I hear all these people talking about Darren Sproles. Darren Sproles, they say, if you don't know him, he's a running back on the Eagles. He's just a, a real quality guy. If you don't know anything about this, Chip Kelly, the Eagles coach, loves quality people. There are certain qualities he likes about people. If you've ever, they have these things they call chipisms. And his, uh, his big thing is uh, culture beats, uh, what's, what's he call it? Culture beats... Um, Schemes, I think is, is what it is. Culture beats scheme. He says, if you have the right culture in the, in the locker room, if you have the right culture, the right people in, on the team, it will beat any team who has tried to out-scheme you. Is basically what he's, he's looking at. He, he likes culture. And he got rid of a lot of people because they didn't fit into the culture of what he wants to have. But Darren Sproles is one of those guys he fits into his culture. And they got a new uh, running back on the Eagles. And he was talking about how Darren mentored him for the last year and then this year. And he just, he says, wherever Darren goes, I'm there. He just, I was just reading the article about him the, today or yesterday. Wherever Darren goes, I'm right there. He, I'm in his back pocket, he says. And Darren is always taking time to tell me about things, to tell me what to do, tell me how to train, tell me how to prepare, tell me how to get ready. He's always passing these things on, even though the guy that he's mentoring is the guy who's supposed to take his place in a few years. Now, you remember, uh, who was it, Brett Farr? When he had, uh, was it Aaron Rodgers who was on the team? And he was supposed to mentor him, and he says, I don't know, why should I mentor him? Why should I do that? Didn't want to. Wasn't going to spend any time in Aaron's on his own. To, to figure it out. So you see, you have those, those different kind of things going on. But it's, but I'm sure Aaron just watched Brett Farr and learned some things because Aaron is one quality quarterback. He's a quality guy too, but he's 
good quality quarterback. And um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a mentoring that's supposed to go on. We are to mentor the next generation, the younger generation. We are to take them on. How good of a job are we doing? Now, there's two things that are involved whenever we look at mentors. First off, we are involved. How good of a job am I doing mentoring others? Here's the second one. How good of a job are they doing listening? Both things have to come in play. But if you get someone who mentors, teamed up with someone who listens, <laughs> oh yeah, you got, a, you got success there. Now Jesus mentored 12 people. How did he do? Was Jesus a good mentor? Absolutely. Did Jesus get frustrated with his guys? Why did he get frustrated with his guys? Because they weren't listening. They weren't hearing what they needed to hear. How many times did Jesus say, for him who has ears to hear? Let him hear. His 12 disciples, they weren't hearing a whole lot. They missed a lot of things. But after he went on, they began to pick up on this stuff. Oh, I know what he was doing there now. And it began to shape them and began to help them. Eventually they began to, to go. But not while he was there. They, uh, they, they learned it later on. Now, sometimes we'll look at some people that were called to mentor. And whether you're called to mentor them or not, folks, let me understand this. You have a responsibility as an older Christian to mentor every single young Christian you come in contact with at all times. That is your responsibility. The older of a believer you are, the more important it is for you to be on your toes 24 hours a day. You've got to watch your mouth. You've got to watch your attitude. You've got to watch your, how you respond to God. You've got to watch how you pray. You've got to watch how you study. You've got to watch how you value the Word. You've got to watch how you let the world interact with you, how you let the world impact you. You've got to get rid of bad attitudes and bring in good attitudes because one bad attitude from a mature believer sets off much more of a ripple in the body of Christ than when a young one does it. We have that important of a role. And we've got to remember, whether you have been called to mentor this person or not, you as an older believer need to watch your mouth, watch your attitude at all times. It needs to be good. Now, here's the thing. When you go, we're going to be going through the life of Elisha. And we will never find Elisha in a bad mood. We'll never find Elisha not having time for people. He constantly does. He's a great mentor. We'll look at other ones. I mean, Solomon, how good of a mentor was he? Should have been really good. He had a lot to pass on to people. He was not a very good mentor. Not very good at all. Didn't uh, work. How good of a mentor was Moses? He mentored a lot of people. It wasn't just Joshua. There was Caleb in there. There was Hur. There was Aaron. There was Miriam. There was the high priest. There was a number of high priests. There, there was a lot of folks that he ministered to and helped directly. There was a lot of elders of Israel that he mentored directly. He mentored a lot of people. And when he left, Israel had a lot of leaders. They really, I mean, when Joshua takes them in, they have a bunch of quality 
leaders that they didn't have when they left Egypt. He did a great job. But here's the better part. People listened. Now, some of them might be because they're afraid of the earth opening up, fire coming down, stuff like that. (laughs) That can have an effect. Absolutely, it can have an effect. But but he, he surely mentored a lot of people. He helped. He grew up a lot of folks. Joshua did the same. There are many folks that that came up under Joshua. He left them in good hands. But they began to drift after that, seeing that the mentoring didn't continue to go on. Mentoring involves people willing to teach and people willing to listen. And here's the thing you've got to be careful of, folks. People will watch you when you don't even know it. They will watch everything that you do. We've got to be on call all the time. Don't have bad attitudes. Don't put people down. Don't speak poorly. Don't say things you don't mean. And make sure that what you mean is based on the Word of God. Because we've said, we told you this before. The higher you get in the leadership in the body of Christ, the less options you have. You have less options. Well, I don't want to do that. Don't matter. <laughs> this is your position. This is your place in the body of Christ. Paul had very few options. What would happen if Paul missed it? What would happen if Paul got some wrong doctrine? What happens if Jesus has a bad day? (laughs) That didn't happen, but... Here's the thing that we have to do. Let's remember the four places that we just looked at with these guys. Do we remember what we came out of? Sometimes we lose patience with some of the younger Christians that are coming up. But do we remember what we came out of? Do you remember how bad it was for God to deal with you when you first got saved? Do you remember? You remember Gilgal? When you had to leave the wilderness behind and move on into the promises? Do you remember what that was like? Well, remember that the people you were coming into contact with, some of them are at Gilgal. They just got out of the wilderness. They need to get some of that wilderness off of them. And you need to have some patience with them. And if they made some mistakes, you need to let them go past it. If you keep remembering people's mistakes they did when they were two years old, when they were a year old in the Lord, if you keep remembering those mistakes, what's going to stop God from remembering yours? Because as you show mercy, you're, you're, you're given mercy. When Jesus gives the parable of the forgiveness, the one man who was forgiven a great amount of sin, he went out and didn't forgive. What happened to his? And what's one of the great warnings that Jesus gives? Woe to the one who causes one of these little ones to stumble. The older we are in God, the more our responsibility is for us to mentor those that are young. And if we have a bad attitude, if we say harsh things, if we aren't willing to help them in what they're doing, what they're moving in for God, oh, I, you're still doing that? I can't believe you're doing that. I have no part with that. Now, come on, folks. Did we, all start, we, did we start there sometime? Do we remember what we came out of? That was the first one. Here's the second one, second place. Remember one from Gilgal all the way out to Bethel? Do we remember what we had to learn to walk in? 
did we remember how we had to learn to walk in being a worshiper? How we had to learn to, to walk into coming into the house of God? How we had to walk with God? How we had to develop that relationship? Have we forgotten that? Because you all know, we didn't come into the family of God mature. <laughs> we've, we've grown some. So how many of you all know we've grown some? I sure hope so. Oh, I tell you what, I hope so. Well, we got some young Christians, folks, in the body of Christ, and they haven't grown yet. We need to show them patience. We need to help them out. We need to do some things with that. Here's the third one. Do we remember how unprepared we were for battle? Remember when you went through some fights in the things of God? When you went through some of your first battles? Do you remember how unprepared you were? How those little things really threw you? And now we scoff at young Christians because of the battles they go through and because they're not having the victory that we're having. Ah, oh, come on, folks. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten Jericho? Here's the fourth one. Have we, do, do we remember how different we are now? Hopefully, different. Do we remember how different we are now than when we first left Egypt, when we first came into the wilderness? Do we see how much growth we've had? Do we see how much God has put into us? Can we see that? Are we willing to put that into others? Are we willing? I've had this, you know, we go this over this all the time. Sometimes somebody wants to become a member of the worship team. Somebody wants to become a member of the Sunday school team. Somebody wants to become a member and help out in different health ministries, be an usher, be a greeter, help out in the sound, different things like that. And I've had people come up to me and say this, do you think that person is really ready for that position? I've had people say that. I'm not going to tell you who or what people, and, but it's, all the time I've been in ministry, it's just always someone who wants to question, do you think that person is ready to be in that ministry? Now see, when we look at that, we, I look at a couple of things. First off, I don't look at their doctrine because how many all know our doctrine is getting better? Even where we are now, we're still getting better with our doctrine. You know what? And doctrine won't hold you back unless you're resistant, unless you just disbelieve what, what it is that you're shown in the Word of God. God will clear up a lot of the bad doctrine that you got. But what's your heart? You've got to know what the heart of the person is. You see, the person's heart is right. You put them in a position. You give them responsibility. They will grow. Yeah, they're going to make some mistakes. They're going to do some, some stuff. They're going to... They're going to... Err. And then what do you do when they err? You come down hard on folks. You can send them right back into the world. What do you do when they err? You go to God. Says, God, Father God, we've got somebody on the team and they've made a big error. What do you want me to do? And you get God's heart on it. And you find out, God, we, our goal is we want to mentor this one. We want to bring this one along for the kingdom of God. What do we need to do? You see, folks, in order to be in ministry, we don't have to be perfect. Or else no one would be in ministry. And if I demand perfection under anyone who's in any ministry, that would be wrong because I'm not perfect. How I want God to deal with my imperfections is how I need to deal with others and their imperfections. And I'll tell you what, we put some people in ministry 
And we've done some things, and some people questioned it. But you know what? From the time we put them in, they started growing faster than they grew before. They got hungrier for God. And they, they just kept growing. They just kept doing some good. Folks, we're called here to mentor. Called to mentor. And the older we are in God, the less room we have for mistakes in front of other people. I'm not talking about with God. I'm talking about with other people. We've got to make sure that we keep our attitude. I mean, if, if, I can, if you ever saw me come in here and I'm just having a, a tough Sunday and somebody greets me in a way and I just snap at them, do you think that would have an effect upon some people? Probably have a little bit of an effect on, on folks. <laughs> it, it would, we have to be careful about that. Now, Jesus sometimes got stern with people, but it, was, it, it had positive results. But we've got to watch ourselves. Folks, our goal is to help people to grow and develop. What are you doing in the area of a mentor? How good? Are you more like Elijah? If you are, you better have some Elishas. Are you more like Elisha? I'll tell you what, I look forward to the days when we can have some people. I mean, David was a mentor to 600 cast-offs, all of which, when he was done mentoring them, anyone in any country would have taken them in their army. By the time David got them, no one wanted them. He got all the misfits, the disgruntled, the people who had no place to go, the desperate, the poor. He got them all. And he turned them into some of the finest fighting men they had ever seen. A band of 600 who took on almost any army and would win. What a mentor. That was a good mentor and good mentorees. The Moseses and the Joshuas and others that we can find from there. This is what we need to have. This is what we need to pursue. Who's in your life that you can mentor? Who's in your life that you can help? Who's around? Father, I thank you that you are leading us to people that we can help. But Father, even if we have no one that you have specifically said, go after this one. There are people all around us, younger Christians than we are, and we can help them grow. We can be excited for the things that they, that they do, the tasks they take on for you, the things that they're doing for your kingdom. And Father, we have ever, if we have ever been a stumbling block to any of these young ones, help us to fix that and not be so caught up with pride that we can't change, that we can't go to them and say, you know, I approached you the wrong way with that. And Father, that helps mentor them in the right way. So Lord, help us to look at our life and look at the people that are around us. Make us into great mentors regardless of who the mentorees are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.